K-A-L-W. A lot of the vendors here don't speak English, so us as second-generation vendors wanted to help first-generation. A Berryessa flea market vendor is helping her family keep their business. Ones that are left are pretty much people, like my dad, they've been selling here for years, and they're like, I can't leave. Like, this is where I sustain my family from, so I'm going to stay till they tell me I can't. Today, we bring you a story from our series, At Work. Then we hear about a Bay Area drag queen creating an all-black drag show. They say Black History Month is, you know, 28 days of February. I say it's 365. And a family conversation about the value of a traditional dance heritage. We're Mexica danzantes of ancestors that come from Central America and Mexico. You're always going to have that because you were raised in danza. Keeping traditions and starting new ones. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Today, we're starting with a new story from our series, At Work, exploring the ways people make a living in the Bay Area. I have a lot of pride in my work. How do you do it? Sprays, masks, gloves. I'm with the Swamp Team. Hi, my friends, and how are you? It's nice now with technology. Pandora's box has been opened. It's a beautiful way to make your living, but it's more work than I ever imagined. The San Jose Berryessa Flea Market has been a historic place of business and tradition since 1960. But in 2024, hundreds of vendors could be displaced when the land the market sits on is rezoned and the available space shrinks to a third of its current size. KLW's Daniela Rodriguez brings us this story about a second-generation vendor whose family's been selling at the flea market for over three decades and is fighting for her parents to be able to keep their business from closing. Just a few steps from the San Jose BART station, I arrive at the Berryessa Flea Market. Inside, it's like a mini city. There's streets in every direction with people selling dulces, clothes, and toys. Oh yeah, and there's also food. Hola, me da unos papitas uh, y un esquite, por favor. I just, I really had to get some. Ooh, and also, an agua fresca sounds really good. All right, all right. I promise that is not why I'm here. On 2nd Street in spot 304, I find Caleb Escobedo and her dad, Nicolas Escobedo, greeting customers at one of their vending spaces. They sell covijas, also known as blankets, their crowded vending spaces stacked with them in tall rows that seem to never end. As big as our stand is, my dad knows everything we have. Like, everything. I mean, I can tell him, oh, do you have this one? And I can look for it three, four times, and I'm like, no, I don't see it. And he's like, no, I have it, and he'll pull it out. It's crazy. It's crazy. Even though today isn't a super crowded day, Caleb and her dad still stay busy. <laughs> They both stand on opposite ends of the vending space, encouraging customers from every direction to come and take a look at their cobijas. And as you can see, there's not a lot of people, but when there's like a lot, sometimes we, we don't sell, but we gotta be alert because, you know, we do have theft, unfortunately. But I, I, I can't complain, so yeah, it's okay. 
hard work is definitely something Caleb's family is no stranger to. She recalls working alongside her parents since she was a kid. I've been here since I was a little girl. People know me. Um, sometimes I don't recognize faces, but they recognize me just because they saw me as a little girl. Nicolas Escobedo says he and his wife have been selling at the flea market before Caleb was even born. So they were both employees for vendors. My dad started as pretty much someone that helps like take things off boxes, you know, I'm loading and things like that. And my mom started as a salesperson. Um, they both work for Korean people. And my dad from that learned a little bit of Korean actually. So I think that's pretty dope. <laughs> The Berryessa flea market all started with George Bum. He opened it to the public in March of 1960. His family still owns the property. The San Jose flea market hosts more than 6,000 vendors. Like the Escobedos, the flea market has been a generational place of business for many families. But just a few years ago, they all found out they might be out of a job. Well, the end of a long-standing San Jose tradition is officially near. Just about an hour ago, the San Jose City Council voted to rezone the area around the San Jose flea market. In June of 2021, the San Jose City Council unanimously approved the Berryessa Bar Urban Village, a mixed-use commercial and residential development this plan will shrink the flea market to one-third of its current size. When vendors found out about this, they quickly organized protests in hopes their voices would be heard. We are going to go on a hunger strike, an indefinite hunger strike, until we are able to ensure that every single person here will be able to continue their businesses. Some of the vendors formed the Barrios of Flea Market Vendor Association or the BFVA. That's when Caleb got involved. I'm um, the secretary and my sister is the treasurer. Uh, it's an association created by vendors for vendors. A lot of the vendors here, you know, don't speak English, are not tech savvy. So us as second generation vendors wanted to help first generation. So that started pretty much from wanting to be able to help my parents and making sure that their voice is heard. But Caleb and her sister aren't just organizing for their family. We say, like, our parents are well off because they have us. But there's a lot of vendors that don't have kids, you know, that are already um, in their 60s, you know, and they're like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Who's going to help me? So that's pretty much why we started it. If the flea market shrinks, Caleb is certain that not all vendors will fit. So the BFVA teamed up with the city of San Jose to make a plan to relocate as many vendors as possible so they can continue to earn a living. The BFVA's activism resulted in a $5 million investment from the Bum family and $2 million from the city to help study the market's impacts, look for a potential new location, and support the vendors in the transition. The flea market is set to close sometime in 2024, depending on development plans, but some vendors aren't waiting to get kicked out and have already left. And the ones that are left are pretty much people that, like like my dad, they've been selling here for years, and they're like, I can't leave. Like, this is where I sustain my family from, so I'm gonna stay till, till they tell me I can't. Both of Caleb's parents are from Mexico. She worries that without the flea market, her parents won't be able to find work here. There's even talks of going back to Mexico, you know, something that we don't want as kids, because I don't know Mexico, you know? This is all I know, and I would, it would be a big hit to lose my parents and not know if they're okay or vice versa, you know?
Caleb is helping her parents try to sell their stuff online, but it's stressful because she's also a full-time student. But my mom has this saying of, un día a la vez. So today we can only do what we need to do today and then we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. When it's time to pack up, you have to rearrange everything. Make sure it's all nicely so it doesn't fall. And then we can cover it up, cover it up nicely as well. As Caleb and her family climb ladders and wrap up the thick blankets they sell in plastic covers, they never stop selling, even to the late customers. Hello. Did you guys have a question? No, I just left. And that's something also that's hard. Like you're packing up and then people come. So you got to think, is it worth to stop? Caleb has hopes of going to law school soon, just like her sister. She says she got her work ethic from growing up here. Everything that we have gotten up until this point is because of the flea. Do you feel like that the hard work that you learned here is going to translate onto whatever you do in the future and your law degree? Oh, definitely. Our dream is to pretty much give back to our community. That's why we're also involved into the BFBA Association, me and my sister. To Kayla's family, the Berryessa flea market is more than just a place of work. It's their home. You know, we have that saying, La Pulga Me Crió. Caleb says, the flea market raised me. In San Jose, I'm Daniela Rodriguez for Cross Currents. Daniela is a current fellow in our Audio Academy training program, and KLW is now accepting applications for our three-month summer training program. If you're an early career radio reporter who wants to gain experience in a supportive and creative newsroom, come learn with us. The deadline to apply is March 12th. Go to klw.org summer to find out more. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. Our next piece comes from the team of Sights and Sounds. The Black Lives Matter protests inspired many artistic projects and performances. For San Francisco drag queen Nikki, she launched a show amplifying Black drag artists, creating an all-Black drag show called Reparations. She describes herself as having, quote, the beauty of a goddess, the legs of a dancer, and the mouth of a sailor. And she has an interesting name, too. She spoke with KLW's Janae Darden. Nikki Jizz, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. I'm excited for this. Yeah, I'm excited to meet with you and, and chat with you too. Okay, so who is Nikki Jizz? Nikki Jizz is your dream come to life. Nikki Jizz is your partner's worst nightmare, your fantasy. She's a comedian. She's live. She's a dancer. She is... Not a singer, but uh, I, you know, Nikki is the all, you know, the dream that you wish a woman could be. Okay, I have to ask. You have a very unique name. (laughs) 
Yes, it's a family name. Yes. Um, it's a really? long, long family name of Jizzes. Um, so how, how did this name, uh, this name come to be? Okay. Um, so the thing is, like, most drag queens have, like, names that are puns, you know? So it's like Cash Monet, you know, or things like that. But um, mine is not a pun at all. Um, it actually came because I was doing a Peaches Christ um, production. And they do this thing where you can sign up to volunteer to give free lap dances to people in the audience. And I signed up for it, and it was for the movie Showgirls, which is one of my favorites. Uh Um, And they asked for you to, like, give a stage name. And I was like, I don't really have a stage name. I've never performed. And this was, like, maybe 10 years ago. Okay. And my coworker I worked with at Amoeba at the time was just like, what about Nikki Jizz? And I was like... Yeah. I'm like, why not? That sounds fun. It sounds hot. It like embodies me. Like my government name is Nick. Uh-huh. So, and I've always been a very like openly, like very sex positive uh, type of person. Um, so I was like, let's just go with that. And I used that as my, that Gogan sing name. And then when I started drag a year later, I was like, I'm just going to use Nikki Jizz. You have this show, an all black drag show. Reparations you created during the pandemic shutdown and the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and I read you you created this show to show support for Black Lives Matter. And some people may be thinking, how does a drag show show support for Black Lives? Well, I mean, you can show support in so many different ways. And drag is a form of activism in itself. You know, it's a form of breaking gender norms and of what society tells us that uh, people are supposed to be like uh, what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to behave and everything. I can help bring joy to people. I can bring, highlight the real issues by doing the show. And some of the issues, like, especially in the queer nightlife scene, is that, like, there's very little, like, representation of, like, Black queer performers or even BIPOC performers in our nightlife, especially in San Francisco, There was, you know, every once in a while, there'll be a token Black girl in every show. But it's just, it wasn't, there was no all-Blackness. Our shows of Black excellence are, I wanted to do something different. And I was, like, watching all this stuff happening, watching the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and I was, like, just really, like, getting depressed. And I was like, I need to make a change myself. So I, on Juneteenth of 2020, I decided on doing a really huge digital uh, drag show. um, And we called it Reparations, um, which was a way for us to be like, to uplift and highlight the Black queer performers in San Francisco, but not just San Francisco, but all over. Because we had performers send in videos from all over the country. And it was more of just being like, this is what Black excellence is. We should not just celebrate Black excellence just in february we should be doing that constantly they say black history month is you know 28 days of february i say it's 365 and the fact that you name it reparations because there's so much people get emotionally people get emotional when they hear that word reparations um why did you choose to name it reparations um it was something i always said in shows because i would be performing at a lot of shows and it was like you know a lot of like majority like cis white men in the audience and i'd be like you know i'm up here giving you your time your energy like you know give me your tips but most importantly i'm gonna call these reparations and i was like this is 
you paying back, you know, like it's about like spreading the wealth and making things better, you know, especially in San Francisco with everyone's like working in tech. I was like, you've got the money to like support black artists, but I called it reparations because I wanted it to be more in a sense where it's like not just a financial thing, but it's also like a reparations and showing the support and love. It's not just a financial thing, but it's like, give us back our reparations, give us our flowers. I just wanted to uplift our community and bring attention to that. Since starting uh, reparations, has there been a change in, you know, how Black drag is viewed in the Bay Area? Um, has, Has there been more awareness from people outside of the Black community as far as just not just having the token like you said, queen, black queen up on stage. Yeah, I think there definitely has been a lot of change since then. Um, I think the pandemic woke uh, woke a lot of people up. Um, and I think some people use it as a chance to be like, oh, Black Lives Matter. But like, you know, didn't posted that black Instagram square, but then went back to like not really supporting and doing anything about it. Um, and with this show, it's more of like, it's a reminder. It's like, remember, we're, we're still fighting. We're still trying to like make this happen. And since reparations has started, like majority of uh, drag shows that I see have a very diverse lineup. And not that it just needs to be like have more black people. I think it should have more drag kings. It should have more people of color, more indigenous people, more Latinx folks. I think having a diverse cast is what I've always like was fighting for with reparations. It's about showing that we care about our community and we care about all the people that are in it. As you know, there's been um, a push around the country to restrict or ban drag shows. Uh, You know, people protesting at like drag story time readings for kids at libraries. Um, You know, there's been violence. what are, what is the black drag community saying about this? What are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, it's my thoughts. Uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I right. Yeah, it's it is it's a little terrifying, you know. It's just honestly, I've seen some of the messages. I've gotten some of those messages. I've gotten death threats from people like that, and it's like terrifying. And you know, I have to I've had to go off social media because of it at, for periods of time and. It's a little, it's sad and it's a depre- it's depressing. And as a black drag performer, seeing all this like hate towards drag queens and LGBTQ, it's not that far off from what I've already experienced as a black person, as a black queer person. You know, I I'm like a triple threat for them. I'm black, I'm queer, and I'm a drag queen. So, what do you hope to see for the future of the Reparations show? What's your vision? I don't know. Um, I have so many plans for reparations. I Right now, we've just been doing it in San Francisco, but I plan on taking it on the road. I wanted to like go around and show all these other cities, like, look at Black excellence. This is what we do. Thanks for coming on, Nikki Jizz. That was drag queen Nikki speaking with KELW's Janae Darden, and that interview was co-produced by Porfirio Rangel. Her next reparations performance is Friday, March 10th at Oasis in San Francisco.
This is Cross Currents. I'm Hannah Baba. In this segment, we're going where tradition meets dance. For Maria Sanchez and Roberto Vargas, Danza Azteca traditions have been important for honoring their Mexican and Nicaraguan cultural heritage. In 2014, the couple sat down with their then 12 and 14-year-old children for a talk about ethnic identity and why danza is so important to them. My name is Roberto Ariel Vargas. My name is Tonali Vargas. My name is Yadira Vargas. I like to go by Chela. My name is Maria Isabel Sanchez. We could ask you, love, to begin the conversation, would you identify as your ethnic background? I still identify as Mexicana. I have not become a citizen yet. I do... I do want to become a citizen, but I I like calling myself Mexicana. Hmm. And I'm curious for our kids, since your mom and I identify differently, I identify as Chicano, Nicaragüense, Centroamericano, Nativo, Azteca, (laughs) Mission District Native, all those things. How about you all? What do you all think are our family traditions that we're handing down to you? I think dance is a big part. I don't like it. I like seeing people dance, but I don't like having to go every Monday for two hours in loud, loud drumming. Sometimes it's nice to be dancing, but I don't like how we're kind of forced to do it. And you, mijo? I like watching it. I like the people who do it. So I respect it and I don't mind helping out. It's just personally, I wouldn't want to continue these for myself. I hear what you're saying and it's good that you're forming your own opinion, your own observations on what traditions you want. What we as your parents are doing now, we came into having the danza azteca traditions through an enlightenment of being educated around our ancestors' histories. We don't go to Catholic church, but we go to danza. That's the way we we give thanks, and that's the way we connect to our ancestors from Mexico and from Central America. Every every day of the dead, Dia de los Muertos, on the 1st of November, we stay up all night, we prepare the altar, we sing songs with the elders, with dancers from all over. They come together to be in ceremony with us. And then we dance as the sun is coming up. When I was your age, I guess, I had some some small connection to uh, the Catholic Church. But later in my life, you know, I found the danza. Yeah, when I was 19, there was a lot of reflection, but also a lot of pain that needed to be processed from being brought from Mexico and my grandparents raising me. You know, I dropped out of high school and was able to get back into college, and I had to work very hard for that. And part of that was my mother seeing how hard she had to work and all the, you know, the violence that she had to go through just coming to this country, having me at age 14. There's a lot of things that go into finding 
my space of identity at 19. You know, we, I mean, we've gone back and forth, like, wrestling with how much do we make you be a part of Danza? How much do we let you do your own thing? I don't like that y'all haven't been dancing or drumming lately. I do want y'all to drum and dance again. But I, what I at least feel good about is that your mom and I at least gave you these traditions and you know some songs and you know some danzas and you know how to how to behave yourself in the sweat lodge and you know how to behave yourself in our ceremonies and you know how to pray, you know. We're, we're danzantes. We're Mexica danzantes of the ancestors that come from Central America and Mexico. You're always going to have that because you were raised in danza. Those were the voices of Maria Sanchez and Roberto Vargas. That San Francisco StoryCorps piece was produced in 2014 by KLW's Judy Silber. And here's some music from a Bay Area artist before we go. This is San Francisco band Top Secret Robot Alliance. They'll be playing in the city at Bottom of the Hill this Friday. Today's Cross Currents team includes Mary Catherine O'Connor, Wendy Reyes, Kyrie Sheem, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Marissa Ortega Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba.